Thanks, Dave, very much. Do keep that open. Let's pray, shall we? For God's help as we look at it together. Father, we're reminded that your word is more precious than gold and silver. And we pray that it would be so to us this morning. That we would see the, the riches and the richness in your word, Lord. That it would change our hearts. That we would be your people who live for your glory as we understand your truth better. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we begin a new series this morning, which we've called The Final few hours. You see, the, the, the last few chapters of Matthew's gospel cover the final few hours of Jesus' life. And it's no surprise that at this point in, in the narrative, as Matthew tells the story for us, that the camera slows down and the detail increases to help us understand something of the eternal significance of what is happening here. You see, so much of our lives, I think, are lived in the fast lane, aren't they? These pictures here on the screen, I think, sum up life in the 21st century pretty well. Everything's a bit of a blur. Life's so full, life's so busy, it rushes towards us and then rushes past us at 100 miles an hour. And very rarely do we slow down for long enough to think seriously about what is happening around us. Or we can't afford to make the same mistake with these final few chapters. Matthew wants us to slow down. He wants us to move from the fast lane to the slow lane. And that's why he gives us this blow-by-blow account, this this detailed description of the final few hours which take us from that, that upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus shared this final supper with his disciples out to that lonely hill outside the city walls where Jesus laid down his life for our sake. And what I hope we see as we, as we walk with Jesus through these final few hours is that nothing takes him by surprise. You see, Jesus' death is not the, the series of an, a few unfortunate incidents that are outside of his control. Instead, it is the climax of his saving purposes. It is the very reason why Jesus left heaven. He's made it clear to us already three times in Matthew's gospel. The first of those comes in chapter 16, verse 21. This is what Jesus says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. At the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. And on the third day raised to life. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him. But maybe more significantly than that, he knows exactly when it is going to happen. Have a look at the start of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover. The Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified the exact moment in time when God chose to bring about his saving purposes was during the Passover feast no doubt the the most significant date in the Jewish calendar when God's people look back with grateful hearts the events of Exodus chapter 12 when God delivered his people from Egypt with mighty acts of judgment and with the blood of a lamb 
And you see that context is absolutely crucial for us to understand what happened here in the upper room. And by the time we pick up the story in verse 17, the start of today's reading, another 24 hours has elapsed. It's now preparation day. It's the Thursday before Good Friday as we know it. And in the words of Jesus, the appointed time is near. Have a look at that verse 17 onwards. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. He's speaking about the time of his death. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, at first glance, there's nothing out of the ordinary here. All Jews in Palestine at that time traditionally ate the Passover meal within the city of Jerusalem. And so like all faithful Jews, Jesus and his disciples make that same journey. And they make the same preparations. But of course, what looked like a normal Passover meal at the outset was anything but normal. In fact, two things happen around the dinner table that evening, each introduced with the same little phrase, while they were eating. Have a look at verse 20 and 21. When evening came, they now gathered together in the upper room. Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating... He said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Then again, in verse 26, same phrase, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Two announcements by Jesus around the table that help us understand the what and the why. What actually happened at the cross and why it needed to happen. Firstly then in Judas we see what man is capable of. Man betrays God. Have a look again verse 21. While they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. You can imagine the stunned silence, can't you, around the table. Jesus is speaking to his best friends, those who've walked with him, those who stood alongside him for the last three years of his ministry. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. Yet as they're tucking into their starter, Jesus looks up and says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Their response in verse 22 is one of disappointment and denial. They're very sad and they began to say to one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. You can imagine them, can't you, going around the table, probably Peter taking the initiative, being the brash man he was. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And they go around the table one after the other. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. But Jesus replies in verse 23. The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Jesus looks around at the worried and confused faces and says, no, it's, it's one of you. It's one of my so-called friends. 
is one who is dipping his hand into the same bowl as me in this intimate moment of fellowship. And no doubt in the back of his mind were the words of King David in Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. As it was with King David, so it is with King Jesus, one of his own inner circle has betrayed him. Now the disciples may have been surprised, but Jesus, well nothing takes Jesus by surprise. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Verse 24, the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. Scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus will be betrayed. And that's why elsewhere in the Bible, Judas is described as the man doomed for destruction. Yet at the same time, Judas remains fully responsible for his actions. This was a deliberate choice. And you can see in verse 14 through to 16 that Judas has already made that choice because he loved money more than his Messiah. Have a look at those words, verse 14 through to 16, the words that precede our passage today. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out from 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas went. This was his conscious, willful decision. He went to the chief priests and he handed over Jesus. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. As one commentator says, it is better to live, or better to never live at all, than to live without faith and die without grace. For to die in that state without grace, in opposition to the Lord Jesus, is to be ruined forevermore. Now when you read uh, a familiar story like this, it's easy to portray Judas, isn't it, as the, as the archetypal villain, the one who walks onto the stage to be greeted by a chorus of boos. But actually, for the most part, that's not how the Bible portrays Judas. Judas was a trusted member of the inner circle. So trusted, in fact, that he was given the responsibility of the money bag. You see, as we walk through this account together, it appears that the disciples were totally unaware of Judas's potential for treachery. Even when Jesus drops the bombshell in verse 21, they don't point the finger at Judas, say, I knew it, knew it was him. First thing they do is seek to defend themselves. They don't know who Jesus is speaking about at that particular point. So deceptive and so hidden is the sin within Judas's heart. And you see, there lies the challenge for each one of us this morning. When we look at Judas, we need to be careful that we're not looking at a reflection of ourselves. Because just like Judas, we too can hide our sin from others. We all know how to put on the mask, don't we? 
to cover it up, to pretend that things are all right. And we, we put on this outward look that everything's okay in our life. But deep down in our heart, things are a mess. Broken desires, unresolved conflicts, adulterous thoughts, greedy motives, angry attitudes. You see, the potential for treachery lies within the heart of every human being. And if left unchecked, has the capacity to do great damage. And so, friends, please, this morning, don't let this time pass you by without giving yourselves that all-important heart check to slow down in the busyness of life, the blur of life, and ask yourself where your heart is before the Lord this morning. Lay it all out before him. Confess it to the Lord. Pray for his glorious, restraining grace in your life that we too would not walk the way of Judas. You see, we may be able to hide our sin from others. But there is one present here this morning from whom we cannot hide our sin. He's never deceived. Nothing is hidden from the piercing gaze of the Lord Jesus. And he longs for each one of us to submit every single part of our life to his lordship. And you know what? That's exactly what Judas failed to do. Did you notice that in the passage, the difference between the disciples and Judas? It's marked by just one word. Verse 22 and 25. They, that's the disciples, were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Then Judas, verse 25, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Not Lord, but teacher. You see, Judas was not living with Jesus as his Lord. And interestingly, there is no record in Scripture of Judas ever referring to Jesus as his Lord. Yes, he hung out with Jesus. Yes, he may have looked the part. Yes, he went on all those adventures and those those missionary journeys with the other disciples. But he never fully submitted his life to Christ as his own personal Lord. And so this morning I must ask you the same question. Is Jesus your Lord? Not just your Saviour who went to the cross for your sake, but your risen King of all eternity and history. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you love him more than any other? And are you willing to submit every single part of your life to his loving Lordship? Firstly, in Judas, we see what man is capable of. Secondly, in Jesus, we see what God is capable of. Man betrays God, but God rescues man. Verse 26, while they were eating. Notice that same phrase again as Jesus is about to make his second big announcement around the table. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. When he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we think about these verses together, it's worth remembering that they are framed by the wickedness and the weakness of human nature. 
We have the wicked betrayal of Judas that precedes this scene. And then we have the weak denial of Peter after it. Yet sandwiched in between the wickedness and the weakness, we have the glory of God that is revealed in his commitment to rescue and redeem. And the backdrop, as we've seen already, for this glorious redemption act is the Passover meal. It's not time now to go back and to to read of those events in Exodus chapter 12 and all that surrounds them. But let me try and sketch them out for you very briefly. If you remember, God's people had been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, waiting their promised deliverance. By Exodus chapter 12, nine plagues sent by God had already been and gone. And with each plague, Moses went before Pharaoh and he asked Pharaoh, Pharaoh, will you let my people go? On each occasion, Pharaoh said, no, I will not let your people go. And so we come to the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn son. On that very night, God said he would sweep through the land in judgment and his wrath would fall on every single home. But wonderfully, God had made provision for his people. He told them to slaughter a lamb, a one-year-old lamb without defect, without blemish, and to eat this lamb with the unleavened bread ready to leave and to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of the house so that when the Lord visited that land and swept across the land of Egypt in judgment he would see the blood covering that house and he would pass over that house because there had already been the death of a substitute lamb in the place of the firstborn son and on that night God's people left Egypt en masse and so the scene is set isn't it The meal is underway as they celebrate, as they return to these glorious events of rescue and deliverance. The meal is now underway. Fifteen hundred years of tradition are in place. But in verse 26, the normal custom and rituals are abandoned as Jesus turns the attention away from Egypt and that first rescue to himself and an even greater rescue to come. This is my body. Verse 26. This is my blood. Verse 28. The bread and the wine, of course, are just symbols. The bread, a symbol of the body of the Lord Jesus, given for our sake, and the wine, a symbol of the blood that was spilt. And so on that very day when households all across Israel gather together and sacrifice the Passover lamb as they look back to Exodus, Jesus steps forward and he points to himself as the fulfillment of that ceremony. And his point is a simple one. The old Passover meal has been superseded by another meal. Why? Because the old covenant has been superseded by a new covenant. God's rescue from Egypt has been superseded by an even greater rescue and deliverance from sin. A sin that comes through trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see at the cross... 
God's judgment fell on Jesus so that it might pass over us. Just like God's judgment fell in Egypt, but it passed over those houses marked with blood. If your life is marked with the blood of Christ, if you've trusted in him, God's judgment has already fallen at the cross in order that it might pass over you. And so it came to be. Within 24 hours of Jesus breaking bread and pouring wine, the disciples would see the body of Jesus torn and ripped and strung up on a cross. And they'd see the blood dripping down that was shed for them. Poured out, sacrificial language, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so if you're sat here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not good enough. Jesus says, I know. But my blood is enough. And if you're battling with the same destructive sins that seem to resurface in your life again and again, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm just not good enough. Jesus says, I know. But my blood is enough. And if you sought to live your life according to your own moral framework or standard, and you've come to the realization this morning that that's not enough, To meet God and to be right with God. Jesus says, I know, but my blood is enough for you. His death is sufficient to deal with all your sin. Past, present and future. Because every last bit was laid to his account at the cross. My sin not in part but the whole. Nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. And in the moment we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to remember that fact that our Saviour bore our sin in our place. But as we look back and remember, I pray with deep gratitude in our hearts for the forgiveness of sin that Christ purchased for you at the cross. So we also look forward. Have a look at verse 29. Because Jesus looks forward, doesn't he, at the Last Supper. He doesn't just look back, he also looks forward. I tell you, says Jesus, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. That glorious day when I drink it with you, my friends, in my Father's kingdom. As Jesus broke bread and poured wine, he looked beyond these final few hours he looked beyond the suffering and the agonies that he was going to experience and he looked to the kingdom to come and so should we to that day when the wine will be flowing in eternal celebration of our great saviour and so you see the lord's supper is a time for healthy examination There should be a seriousness to this time as we consider all that Christ went through for us. But as well as being a time of healthy examination, it's also a time of joyful celebration. We shouldn't just sit there with somber faces. There should be a seriousness. Of course there should be a seriousness. But there should be a joyful celebration exploding in our hearts as we look forward to that day. 
to that day when we join Jesus in his new creation around the banquet table of the king. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Before we finish, we must hear that invitation again as we do come to the table, verse 26 and 28. Jesus calls us to come. He calls you to come. To take and to eat and to drink and to partake of the life that he offers. And so the question for you is, will you come? Will you come to Christ this morning? And will you trust him with your life and with your death? You see, we may waver, and we do in our commitment towards him, but he never wavers in his commitment towards us. And if we ever need convincing of that, then we just look back to the cross. And the covenant, that promise that Jesus sealed with his own precious blood. To give you a moment to be still, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And I love you maybe to echo this prayer in your own hearts. Maybe it's a prayer that you'll pray for the first time. Maybe you've seen your sin properly for the first time this morning and you've seen your saviour. And what he's done for you. And maybe for you it's an opportunity to reaffirm that commitment in your heart to live with Jesus. Not just as your saviour, but as the Lord of all. So I'm going to say it nice and slowly and just give you the opportunity to respond to each line in your own hearts. Lord God, I'm sorry for my sin. I know that I'm not good enough. But Jesus died for my sin. And I know that his blood is enough. Father, please forgive me. And help me to live with you as the Lord of all my life. Amen.